Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Our reading is from Romans this morning. Chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, wow. Good morning to all of you. I want to say a special good morning to all the people joining us online, um, some of which may actually be joining us from the middle of the night over in Zambia. So if you are watching, thank you and and welcome. Uh, Some of you, or those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Vondre. Uh, My family and I attend Waukesha Bible Church. I'm not a pastor or an elder. I don't have any theological degrees. And at this point you're wondering, wow, I wonder what he's going to (laughs) say right today. I'm like you, right? I am a follower of Jesus. I'm a student of the scriptures. So as such, I am absolutely humbled and honored to be standing up here to share with you uh, this letter, this message, this study that I've prepared for today. And um, it's, a, it's a responsibility that I haven't and don't take lightly. Our study today is a topical one. So I'm going to encourage you to you know, take out your Bibles and, and work with me, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to be making application from several Old and New Testament passages, from the events of the Reformation, and then also from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I've taken great care, though, to ensure that the literary and the historical context of all of those source materials is absolutely correct. That said, as always, I would encourage you to pick up an outline out in the foyer if you haven't already. Review all of those source materials for yourself. Unlike many of the studies that we've done together, this one comes with a disclaimer. I'll read that now. We are not accustomed to, nor would we encourage a lecture 
where the intent was to oppress one people group by elevating another. Neither is, is this study, is the purpose of this study, to oppress Roman Catholicism or to elevate some sect of Protestantism. Rather, its aim is to place the doctrine of Solus Christus into its historical and biblical context and to ultimately show through the authority of God's word that there is no other works of man necessary for salvation because Jesus is enough. If anyone other than Jesus Christ himself today is elevated by this study, I failed. But if in whatever we do, Christ is glorified, then we have succeeded to fulfill our purpose as his people. So with that, let's begin. Solus Christus, Christ alone. It is a profound statement in bold opposition to a humanistic worldview. And thanks to the early reformers like Martin Luther, this idea is common amongst believers like us today. But to the hopeless and the Bibleless people of the Middle Ages, this Latin bumper sticker was revolutionary, to say the least. The story of Martin Luther is the story of redemption. It's the story of the lost being found. It's the story of a man being born again in the spirit. And while it's not a new story, it is a significant one. Because like the Apostle Paul, as God's glory shone through this man to the world, God used it to light the, the world on fire for Christ. The controversy. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk and a Ph.D. professor of theology. He lived in Germany at a time when Rome was fundraising for the building of the Basilica of St. Peter. Now, the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church at this time and the personal wealth of the Pope was very well known. But the project was instead being funded by the selling of indulgences for the forgiveness of sins, a false gospel that claimed to provide a full or partial forgiveness of your or another's sins in exchange for money. This was something that Martin Luther couldn't stand for, couldn't tolerate, and would ultimately stand against. Hans J. Hillenbrand, professor emeritus of history and religion at the prestigious Duke University, he writes this. According to most scholars, by the end of 1518, Luther had reached a new understanding of the pivotal Christian notion of salvation, reconciliation with God. Over the centuries, the church had conceived the means of salvation in a number of ways. Common among all of them, however, was the idea that salvation is jointly affected by humans and by God. By humans, through the marshalling of their will to do good works and ultimately thereby please God. And by God, through his offering of grace. Martin Luther broke with this tradition dramatically. By asserting that humans can contribute nothing to their salvation. Salvation is fully and completely a work of divine grace, he would say. In other words, you can't. God can. Jesus did. Luther's understanding... It came to him after a long inner conflict in which he agonized, even despaired over his inability to marshal himself, his works. He had a high view of the law. 
While meditating on the letter of Paul to the Romans, specifically chapter 1, verse 17, in which the apostle declares, For in it, i.e. the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther, like the apostle Paul, experienced an illumination that he would later describe as a kind of conversion. It was as if the very gates of heaven had opened before me, he wrote. Martin Luther was clearly convinced of his understanding of the scriptures and the gospel, and that Jesus is enough, as are we. But while there are millions of Protestants living in the world today, there are even more Catholics who still labor under the burden of a Jesus plus works theology. So, how do we know we're right? Is Jesus enough, or do we need something more? This is a question we here today would all likely answer quickly and resolutely, but one we must be able to prove from the authority of God's word if it's going to matter. So with the time that remains after that lengthy but necessary introduction, we will attempt to resolutely prove from God's word that Jesus is enough for three primary reasons. Number one, Jesus is enough because he is the promised one who was to come. He is the Messiah. Jesus is enough because he alone has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus is enough because he's God. So with much to cover and a short time to do it, we'll begin in the book of Genesis. We're not going to be reading the entirety of the text today. Jesus is enough because he's the Messiah. Since humanity's rebellion and exile from the presence of God in chapter 3 of Genesis, there has been an expectation that one day God would provide a human who would redeem us. And in a handful of covenants that God made with men long ago, we're reminded that what God has said, he will do. However, the people living prior to 30 AD, they had no idea who this person would be or when he would come. The Messianic Jewish authors writing for the nonprofit group One for Israel, they put it this way Sure, the people then were looking for a savior, but some hoped for a mighty military leader, while others looked for a deliverer from the sky. Some looked for a holy priest, while others, a teacher of righteousness. But no one was looking for a crucified Messiah, and no one was looking for a lamb of God. Why? Well, perhaps they had forgotten that the righteous servant of the Lord was himself to be an asham, an offering for sin. Isaiah 53.10 It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his day. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Or perhaps they had forgotten Father Abraham's words that God would provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Genesis 22, 7 through 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I can only imagine what he was thinking. Abraham said, God will provide for himself 
the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The significance of the Messiah is that his sacrifice alone is credited with the propitiation of God's wrath and the forgiveness of our sins. The Apostle Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is a fact that escapes many would-be worshipers even today, who by offering their own sacrifices, even alongside his, become guilty of rejecting what God himself has provided. Such is the case for Roman Catholic doctrine, which adds acts of contrition and the receipt of sacraments to the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. An act that is itself a sin of unbelief, much like that which the Apostle Paul addressed in his letter to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 specifically. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Very simply, those who would add to the sacrifice of Christ don't believe that Jesus is enough. But Jesus is enough because he's the Messiah. There are more than 44 Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, where he would be from, how he would be born, who his descendants would be, what he would be called, and how he would live and die. Jesus didn't fulfill just some or half, or three-quarters of these. Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled them all. But it wasn't until he fulfilled them that people began to put two and two together. In fact, there are several places in the New Testament where we read about people coming to this revelation with a little bit of help. Like in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, specifically verses 20 and 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, in the Greek, Jesus, or Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yahshua, Joshua. But no matter how you translate it, the meaning is clear. Yahweh is salvation. The verse then continues. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by a prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. Another example, Luke 2 verse 10, when angels tell some shepherds that a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, is indeed Christ the Lord. Or in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Another example in Luke 24, when we read about our resurrected Lord himself walking with some men on the road to Emmaus that were confused by Jesus' death. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. We could spend, I could spend all day recounting the many ways in which Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the things prophesied about the coming Messiah. But as you can already see, there is no doubt Jesus is the Messiah, which is one undeniable reason why Jesus is enough. Now let us consider our second undeniable reason why Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough because he has the authority and the power to forgive sins. In speaking to the Jewish authorities in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus said, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. To claim authority from God that has not been granted to you is the same bad choice that Adam and Eve made. And it's what Martin Luther recognized about the forgiveness of sins promised by Roman Catholic indulgences. But Jesus didn't come claiming his own authority. In Matthew chapter 8, we read about stories of Jesus traveling around, followed by great multitudes of people, healing people, casting out demons, calming storms, all at the command of his voice. Then in chapter 9, we read a story about Jesus healing a paralytic. But this time, he says something different than all the times before. This time, he says, your sins are forgiven. Which, of course, caused quite a stir amongst the Jewish Pharisees and scribes who were apparently in the crowd following him around, watching him do these things. We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Did you catch that? Pre-crucifixion Jesus. Pre-crucifixion Jesus. Just forgave someone's sins without any meritorious, praiseworthy, or commendable effort on the part of the one whose sins were forgiven. 
And then he said to the scribes and everyone listening that his ability to heal is a sign of his power and authority to forgive sins. Which is great because remember, this is all about redemption. Just like all the people Jesus had healed before with his words, this paralytic got up and walked. He never questioned whether he was really healed. None of them ever did. Why? Because they really were healed. Just like you don't need to question whether your sins are really forgiven. Because thanks to Jesus, they really are. There are 37 of Jesus' miracles recorded in the Bible, 33 of which are healing-type miracles. And the Apostle John in John 21-25 said that there were so many more things that Jesus did that if all of them were, were to be written down, he supposed that the world couldn't contain the books that would be written about them. However, the greatest healing miracle that Jesus did was to rise from the dead himself. And Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. A massive statement of his authority and power and one that could only be proven by him actually dying and rising again. Which is exactly what he did according to the earliest creedal tradition, 1 Corinthians 15. A source virtually all scholars date to within five years of Jesus' death. And one that even the earliest followers of Jesus confirmed. This is what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. This is that creed. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters many of whom are still alive today, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah, he did. Does Jesus have the authority and power to forgive sins? Without a doubt, he does. This is another undeniable reason why Jesus is enough. So far, we have noted two reasons why Jesus is enough. Now let's consider what is perhaps the most significant and important reason of all. Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That they are justified by God's grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation and appeasement by his blood to be received by faith. Why? So that God could be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not you, not your pastor or priest, not Mary 
Tom Cruise, an idol statue, or any other unholy thing that people choose to deify in their rebellion. Only God can justify the sinner. And as you're about to see, Jesus is God. Dr. Eitenbar, a native Jewish Israeli, Messianic Jew, PhD biblical scholar, all-around smart guy and author of such books as Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, notes in his research that the Old Testament is full of examples and prophecies that the promised Messiah will be God himself. In his love, he'll reveal himself to us, suffer with and for us. He will die and bring us perfect sacrifice for our sins. One of those examples comes from Genesis, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Can you imagine having such a close, personal relationship with Creator God, the self-existing one, that even with your eyes closed, you can recognize the sound of His footsteps? It's amazing. And while there is a lot going on theologically in this passage, one of the very practical lessons is that in the beginning, God had a physical presence in the physical world that he created for us. So we should not be surprised that sometime in the future, he does that again, which he does. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, a name reserved in the Holy Scriptures just for references to creator God, the self-existing one appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself all the way to the earth. And then he said, O Lord, O Yahweh, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under this tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so the three men said, do as you have said. In other words, whatever these three guys looked like, whatever they did or whatever they said, Abraham recognized that one of them was not like the other. One of them was Yahweh himself in the flesh. And Abraham and Sarah talked to Yahweh. They washed Yahweh's feet. They fed Yahweh. This passage also reinforces for us the special name of God in the scriptures, and of course, that is Yahweh. And this becomes extremely important in our next passage, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. This prophetic text is about the coming of the Messiah. And what I want you to pay special attention to is what the author calls the Messiah, the name that he gives to the Messiah. It reads, Behold, the days are coming, 
declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name. This is the name by which the Messiah will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you know what word is being translated as Lord here? Hopefully by now you do. It's Yahweh. Again, the name reserved just for references to the sovereign God of the universe, the creator, the self-existing one. Bringing this all together then, the scriptures are preparing us to expect a Messiah who will literally be Yahweh. Knowing this and that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that the text has said and prophesied about the Messiah, should we be surprised when Jesus shocks the crowd in the Gospel of John chapter 8, verses 53 through 59? The Jews said to him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Do you remember when Abraham and Sarah fed Yahweh and washed his feet? So the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And of course, I am. In other words, the self-existing one is the name that God gave himself when speaking from a burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And they picked up stones to throw at him because, of course, they realized what he was claiming. He was saying he was God in the flesh, in their presence. Are you convinced yet? Jesus is God. Absolutely. We started our study today by acknowledging that there are lots more people in the world straining under the burden of a faith plus works theology than people who have been set free by Jesus' works of faith. And we see now that their captivity doesn't mean they're right. Instead, we've witnessed three undeniable reasons from the authority of God's word, why Jesus is enough, both for this life and the life to come. Jesus is the Messiah. He alone has the power and authority to forgive sins, and he is God. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, our church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Bible really is a single story, and at its center is Jesus. In the beginning, God said that the seed of the woman would put an end to evil. Little did they know then that it would be God himself who would put on flesh and bear the curse so we could be set free. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, even here today. No matter who you are, what you have done, or what you have believed, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one is reconciled to the Father. No one is forgiven. No one gets eternal life, but by him. So if you have yet to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, he invites you now to do so as we pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the Savior of the world, the promised one who was to come, our Messiah. You are God Almighty, full of grace and truth and infinite love for your people. You are faithful in all things. You alone have done what we could never do. You alone grant eternal life and the forgiveness of sins to all who believe. May your spirit use the word of God to do a sure work in your people so that whether at work or worship, your glory would be revealed for all the world to see. Praise and glory to you forever and ever. Amen.